0: Welcome to Digital Metropolis, a podcast about the future of cities and those building it. We talk to cutting-edge leaders in urban planning, technology, and policy in order to understand the evolving implications of the space fiend habit. Tune in each week to learn about how digitized property, urban technology, and artificial intelligence will transform the way you buy, work, move, and imagine. My name is Roman Shumakov, and you're listening to The Taiwan Report. Sean Moss-Paltz, welcome to the Taiwan Report. Would you like to introduce yourself to our
1: audience? Sure. So I'm originally from San Diego, California. I've been here for, I guess, 16 years now. And typically, I divide my time about a third in the US and two thirds in Taiwan. But since COVID, since February, I haven't gotten on a plane once, which is quite rare for me.
0: That's probably a a good and a safe decision. Now your company, Bitmark, has been making a lot of waves in Taiwan and across the world, especially in the age of COVID. But what has been your journey before finding Bitmark?
1: Mm, Yeah, so I would say that it started with computers at about age five or six. That was my first computer. It was a 8086. I don't know if anybody remembers those kind of things. And I've been through sort of all of the the modern PC era, starting with you know, that particular processor all the way to 286, 386, 486, Pentiums, you know, all through that, kind of having some deep interests in both programming and also design, these two, and I put myself through university doing web design, so it was back in the kind of the late 90s, early 2000s. Everybody wanted a website, you could charge a lot for doing pretty simple things. And then my best friend from university, uh, during a spring break, he said, Would you like to come to Taiwan and China? And we'll travel around for a bit. I was in the middle of really nowhere, a very small town, looking at these unbelievable mountains, kind of bouncing in this terrible car that was masquerading as a taxi. And he asked me, he turned around and asked me, he says, what's your favorite part of this trip so far? And I had no answer. It was like everything I know was from reading books. And it was like a a sack of bricks to the head that I need to see the world, I need to get out. And long story short, I bought one of these around the world plane tickets when they still had these things and just traveled. You could pick a hemisphere, north or south. And then, as long as you kept going in the same direction, you can't go backwards. You can keep traveling as many cities as you want. So, I liked Barcelona and I liked Taipei. And I figured that, well, because I'm more into technology, that's always been my thing, that I should probably come to Taipei. Hmm. And so, I actually came here and worked at Shinzu, not Taipei. Started doing things related to wireless access points, and then quickly got involved with mobile phones so your introduction into the tech space was very much with hardware so i'm very much a software person and there's this saying from Kay that people that love software want to make their own hardware Mm -hmm. and so i always wanted to do hardware and i thought that this was my chance to learn hardware to come to asia to learn supply chain to learn how consumer electronics are made and so that's really the reason why i ultimately decided to stay here for so long is because I do believe that, that you need to bring the hardware and the software together and you have to understand both. Mm-hmm. So I really learned the hard way that I suck at hardware and I should stick with software. <laughs> but learning hardware changed my perspective on software really fundamentally. Interesting. In what way? I don't think it's possible to understand things like machine learning or Bitcoin or any of these really foundational trends going on now. If you don't understand how the software and hardware are coming together and how we have increasingly specialized hardware for doing things that software is slow to do. And when you get this specialized hardware, for example, these GPUs that what they enable and to be able to be flexible in your mind of, okay, this is what software can do. And this is what hardware can do. And this is what can happen if you can merge them together. So they're really two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. It's about computation. And they work together. And how they work together is something that I continue to learn about. Continues to blow my mind. Got it. Was Bitmark born out of this fascination
0: with the hardware-software relationship?
1: Well, Bitmark actually had hardware for a moment. We'll come back to it. So my company before Bitmark was called OpenMoko, And this was after we, So after I came here, I worked on the protocol stack for mobile phones. These were very simple phones. They called them feature phones. We decided to develop our own protocol stack from scratch instead of spending, I think it was like something, $2 million US to license a protocol stack from Japan. Mm -hmm. And by the time we finished developing the protocol stack, we were already like two years behind schedule It didn't really work like The the packets kept dropping and the calls kept failing and we could never really figure out why So it was a disaster in that we shipped all of these units uh, forgot how many millions of units and The suppliers just pushed them all back because they're like this is not stable. It doesn't work. And so I Was ready to go home. I, I was working for a company that was doing this. I was just an engineer a software engineer and I was ready to go home and uh, actually the older brother of my friend that got me here in the first place was talking to me one day and we got around to the conversation of this phone and why it failed. And I said that I thought it was just brain dead to be making software from scratch when Linux was completely taking over the internet. So this was the early 2000s and every computer on the internet was running Linux. And I just felt that our phone should run Linux, because the processing power in the phone was essentially the same as a computer two or three years ago, which was running Linux. And so why are we doing these silly, they called them real-time operating systems, they were very primitive. Like, why are we doing this when there's this whole community online working towards something incredible? So I started a company before Bitmark that was doing hardware and software, making mobile phones. And we wanted to make an open source phone. So people could, this was before iPhone, before Android. So people could put whatever they wanted to on their phone. If you can kind of think back, uh, I don't know how old you are, but if you could think back to the Nokia days, when if you wanted to get a phone to do new things, you had to buy a new phone, There's no software you could download. You can't change your phone.
0: At which point do you transition from designing open software? hardware to working on data provenance and yeah. you know securing your existence
1: online sure so i think it was about 2010 or 11 that i had to shut down the company open MoCo. that was like a really painful time in my life and i to be honest i was quite lost i didn't know what to do next i did some consulting type work in the sense that I had a number of friends that came and they said, Hey, can you help me with an open source strategy for X or for Y? And so I was working with them on a number of projects. A good friend of mine sent me the Bitcoin white paper and said, Hey, you should read this. And I, instead of reading it, I Googled Bitcoin and then I think I got to slash dot and it talked about this is some kind of money. And I'm like, this is money for geeks. It's not interesting. Four or five months later, I met up with him again. And he said, did you read the white paper? And I said, nah, I just Googled it. I wasn't really interested. And he said, you should go back and read the white paper. And so I did that. And that people use this cliche, like you go down the rabbit hole, but that was the rabbit hole to understand that here was a mechanism that individual people could create money. And before that money to me was like, That's like the weather it's yeah, it exists. You can't change it. You have no control over it. And the fact that you could use software to make money, it just blew my mind right away. I got obsessed with it and I wanted to get involved with this community and figure out, okay, well, what contribution could I offer? And this was like a long Like really long journey to get to this point, like many, many months of thinking very deeply about digital money. And then there was just this incredibly simple question. So I started to acquire Bitcoin because I wanted to learn more about it. And my dad, he's a lawyer, he does estate planning. And I asked him, how do I put this money, this digital money into my trust? Right. So my dad's a lawyer. I don't have much assets, but people that have a lot of money, they create these things called trusts and the trust allows for the preservation of wealth. And it makes it very simple. If something happens to me, my wife could get it, my son could get it. There's a very clear process. So everybody that reaches a certain stage in life should have one of these things. And so I wanted to put these digital things in there. And he's a lawyer in California. So if anybody should know how to do that, it would be him. He had no idea. I was like, okay, I found it. That's what we got to work on, digital property. How do you give people ownership over this stuff?
0: So you're in an interesting place where people of my generation, who are a little bit younger, are a little bit envious of because you saw kind of the birth of the internet. I, I wrote my final history thesis on the first instance of computer crime in '89, and that was the thing that blew my mind. For most people who have grown up, you know, in the 20th century, that was. Peanuts, but you saw kind of the instance of the way the internet is constructed with insecurity as almost the foundation of its infrastructure. Mark Zuckerberg never envisioned that Facebook was going to be used to influence elections. MIT researchers and Stanford researchers never thought that packet switching might make your data even more vulnerable. What do you see as the foundational problem of our digital world that you are solving?
1: So I oftentimes use internet and web interchangeably. They're different, of course, but most of the people know the internet through the web. And the original purpose of the web, this is what Tim Berners-Lee created it for, was it was supposed to be a personal information system. And the idea would be that two people to the entire planet could connect together to work on really important problems. And he called these like ecological problems when he was a physicist, so he was thinking more about like humanity and how do we solve these really big problems. But the original web did not take into account two things, payments and information ownership. These were two things that even as early as 1994, Tim Berners-Lee said that we're probably going to need protocols that allow for these two things. And if you go back to this packet switching that you mentioned, so what makes the internet unique is what's known as an end-to-end protocol. And what this means is that it doesn't matter what happens in the middle. Like if there's a hardware failure or there's an actor that blocks certain things the the underlying protocols of the internet will just route around that the software if you will will take care of any sort of dropping in packets so tcpip works that way Uh, the web protocols build on top of that and these two payments and information ownership these two protocols were protocols that berners lee said "Ooh, we're probably going to need these things and i actually only learned about this, I want to say two years ago. So after starting Bitmark. And it was really always a struggle for me. I knew that the internet had holes that needed to be fixed because it was essentially created during a time period where it's not fair to say it was socialist, but it was almost like you know, uh, information is going to be free and everybody's going to have things for free and everything is going to be abundant.
0: It was utopian. It was
1: very utopian. Yeah. And you know, what's that saying? Like every utopia ends in dystopia, right? It was very, it was very utopian. It was very not understanding of how the real world functions and how corporations can externalize so whenever a corporation finds something that's free, they take as much of that free stuff as possible. So whether that's your data like Zuckerberg and Facebook or Google or any, you know, Shell and Exxon and, you know, Carbon, right? Whenever a corporation is able to extract something and externalize the cost of that on the environment, they'll do that. And so I think it became obvious to me that it was incredibly important to fix some of the foundations of the internet. That the internet is in many ways from my perspective, at least, the most important part of society right now. That if we lose that, we lose our ability to organize globally. And we go back to this kind of tribal, nationalistic view of the world. That the internet, at least when I grew up with it, it was this amazing thing that it didn't matter where you were in the world. didn't matter who you were. You could connect with each other and have conversations as peers. Do you think
0: the internet now has escaped those kind of wild, wild west days where it was a lot easier. There was a lot more diversity in websites and access and the kind of populations that exist on the internet rather than just having Instagram or Google and these few top services that dominate most of your attention span on the web.
1: I feel a real sense of loss. When I grew up, there was this feeling of a frontier that you could make anything you wanted to and you never had to ask permission. Like that was what was so amazing about computers. And I think that's what attracted people like me, people that have sort of an explorer spirit and we want to learn things by doing things. And if I think about, my son now is seven. And if I think about what computing is gonna mean to him, it's iPhones and it's iPads and it's app stores. And even to be able to get an app into the app store, you have to pay $99. I didn't have $99 when I was 13 or 14, that would have been impossible. I couldn't contract with a company when I was 12 or 13. I mean, I don't even think you can get an iPhone license. I know you can't even use Facebook, well, technically, (laughs) unless you're over 13. And so we've created this, we as in society has created this digital environment that in many ways does not let people change the fundamentals of how the computing works, at least not without permission. Like you always have to say, Hey, Apple, can I distribute this thing to people? Or, Hey, Google, you know, can you index my website? Right. And so I feel that, that this, this permissionless innovation is really, we're losing this. And it's one of those things that it's like oxygen. You don't realize how amazing it is until it's cut off yeah.
0: Do you do you truly believe that distributed ledgers and blockchain is the solution to this endemic problem?
1: Well, it plays an important role. So, I think actually to understand what role it plays, it's very important not to oversell what blockchain can do. So, essentially, like what is a blockchain? It's an algorithm for allowing uh, individuals or allowing just actors to arrive at a state, maybe back up for a moment. So the original problem with the internet was that these protocols, they didn't have what's known as state. And so what that means is if you wanted to record, hey, what's going on, so you could come back to it at a later time, they couldn't do it. Like you needed some server to store that information. Then you're no longer in this distributed system. You're in a system where if you want the information, you have to go to some central server. So you no longer have this end-to-end system. You have a system where it's sort of end-to-end, but you have intermediaries that are required to store the state. So things like payment, for example, with digital money would be impossible because, well, impossible to do end-to-end because the protocol can't store the state. This is really fundamental. So what a blockchain enabled was the storing of state. And that state could be who has what money, that state could be, for example, the, the stack of a computer program. The ways that people fixed this was with cookies, right? So the web used cookies to store state. And you probably know all the issues with cookies and advertising and third-party tracking and all of that kind of thing. And so so we needed a way to store state without relying upon third parties. And that's really what the invention of blockchain is, is. It's a way to record. It's almost like an accounting system. It's really that boring. But it's a way to record who has what without... central authority that maintains that and that's ridiculously important but it's only important insofar as you need a way to record state without relying upon uh, centralized intermediaries which i felt the internet needed that because of what's happening how you know the instagrams the facebooks they are centralizing more and more of the communications of what's going on like everything is becoming centralized with them And the only way you can decentralize that is if you have a mechanism to store state. Anyways, it's kind of a long-winded way of saying it. I'm not sure if I got your question or not.
0: No, you answered it perfectly because I think despite how boring it sounds, accounting principle (laughs) is totally what blockchain is. But you've expanded it a little bit beyond just accounting, right? You you have a few solutions and a few projects. Can you talk about the specific aspects
1: that you're, you're fascinated by? Yeah, you bet. So the way that we were looking at this is what parts of the foundation of the internet could benefit from decentralization and so going back to berners lee originally he mentioned payments which of course i mean that that was bitcoin right that's what's so fantastic about bitcoin is it really is money for the internet and we felt that that this data was the next major asset class it became clear to me this was 2012-13 that digital assets are where the next generation are going to have their wealth there's this i forgot what it's called there's some kind of like funny wikipedia where they have different definitions that are sort of slang stuff and there was this joke that the only uh, type of property that millennials are going to have is going to be these sort of virtual homes and you know um second life and these kind of things right and so so this idea of a digital asset and data, and knowing who owns it, being able to record who owns it, being able to record where it came from, what rights were attached to it. This instantly felt very foundational, just like Bitcoin, just like money for the Internet. We felt that you would need to have you would need to have some way of attaching a provenance to certain pieces of data or information on the internet. Otherwise, you lose it, you don't know where it came from. You can make infinite copies, that's what a computer does. And so therefore, you need these central authorities to control the records so you know who has what record. And that was the part that we're like, okay, we have to decentralize that. Can you talk about the
0: projects that you're currently working on? I know there are multiple with Berkeley, there is some with Pfizer. Yeah. Um, you're doing uh, work with
1: artists, yeah. peer tracking. So what we did was we spent about two years to come up with a way to store provenance of something digital in a way that could be what we felt with a high degree of confidence that this could stay decentralized. Once we came up with the technology, okay, well, who needs this? And you know, what's, what's the entry point? What's the beachhead? And so this became sort of uh, an experiment can we come up with, let's say, half a dozen different, what you would call verticals, different industries that record value or record provenance? And could we, could we pitch them that, hey, you should do this in a decentralized way? So I spent at least a year, probably more like two years, talking to everyone from Sotheby's for art to customs and border agents, you know, for packages coming into countries. And the first one that we realized we could have an immediate impact on was in music. And so music, we, we kicked off a project with KK Box. They're like the Spotify of Asia. And this project was, well, so when you make a song, multiple people share in the copyright. And the copyright might exist in multiple countries. So you have this incredibly complicated accounting problem of what's the ownership of the song. And you actually have two copyrights. There's a performance copyright, and then there's a song copyright to the lyrics. So you have these two copyrights, maybe in many different countries, held by many different people, including labels and intermediaries. And you want to pay a royalty on this. And this is like one of the excruciating pain points in the music industry. Spotify keeps getting sued for this. They want to give the artist the money, but there's all these intermediaries that take their cut. So in the West, it takes 12 to 16 months on average for an artist to get their check in Asia. It's faster six to eight months. But still, like if you thought about if you got your salary, check every six to eight months, you'd be pretty pissed. So we worked with KK Box and a bank to record those rights on a blockchain, our blockchain, such that both parties, so the artist and the streaming platform, would be able to directly audit that record. And if they were okay with it, they would sign off on it and the bank would just wire the money. So you know, going from uh, six to eight months in Asia, the artists get a check each month. So that was sort of the first project where I was like, ooh, this, this is gonna be, this is gonna be big. That is, that is fascinating. And it has been big. It's been extremely slow. So we got in the beginning, we made a lot of progress. And then we hit a wall. And the wall was the people that record these rights now didn't feel comfortable losing control over the recording of those rights. So so the labels are the ones that hold these rights. And the labels have Excel spreadsheets and lawyers that are holding these rights. And essentially we said, hey, put this on a distributed ledger. So you don't have to trust Bitmark. You don't have to trust KKBox. Put this on this ledger. If they're ever changed, everybody can verify it. And that was just a huge ask. They felt that, well, why should we do this? We have control. So we were able to get the indie people on board very fast. They loved it. But the major copyright holders, we weren't able to get them on.
0: Is this an extended problem in much of the large institutionally powerful world where the organizations that hold the control of the data or the property or whatever identity you have will
1: never want to give it up? I think so. I think that you have to look for something that's new, something that the current system has no ability to support, and you start there. So if I was To go back and do it again i could have saved a lot of time because i could have realized that okay we're not going to change the incumbents but if we can find something that's in that industry that nobody can actually solve right now and if we can solve that first then we can develop the trust in all the parties and later on we can flip the system but we can't go directly at the incumbents it doesn't work
0: yeah. Is it almost more useful to apply this form of decentralized institutionalization in places where these institutions don't exist? So I'm sure you've heard of cases in Brazil where blockchain has been used to back up your, your property rights so a local municipal agency can't you know, erase a line on a spreadsheet and suddenly you lose control of your house. Much of Southeast Asia, Africa, parts of Eastern Europe.
1: Absolutely. What you need is, at a minimum, You need two people that are willing to transact and that are willing to trust that this technology actually is going to record their rights. And as long as you have that, you can get started. If it requires an institution to adopt it, then it'll take a very long time because the institution has this sort of momentum. And every time they see something that's different than what they've been used to, it's just very hard for them to adopt it.
0: So right now your focus is securing information that is purely digital. Yes, absolutely. Do you ever seeing it boomerang back and using the infrastructure that you have built to secure real physical assets, things from the, the homes that you own or the marriage contracts that you have to everything in between?
1: That's the ultimate legacy system. <laughs> so only if we absolutely win in the digital environment will there be the chance of flipping the physical environment? So yes, in my in my dream of the world, that you can authenticate anything, whether it's in the, you know, whether it's bits or atoms, it doesn't matter. We even came up with methods of, I said earlier that we did some hardware, but we even came up with methods of being able to fingerprint any non-homogeneous material. So leather, paper, you know, you name it, we could create a unique identifier for it, but we, We quickly realized that that's a much more difficult problem than going after digital things which don't have rights, don't have property rights, uh, that don't have uh, legacy infrastructure. And if we could show that this technology is valuable for that, valuable as in lower cost, more secure, then it would gradually get adopted through everything. So if going back to the physical world is
0: the long-term plan of Bitmark, and uh, focusing on music as the the
1: past experience of Bitmark. What is your uh, vision for the near future? Well, I actually think that the physical world and the digital world, these are merging and it's no longer clear how these progress to me. I feel like they're becoming more and more entangled. So when we started, we were looking at digital things that you could in many ways say, well, this is just IP. It's intellectual property. It looks like copyright. And then, Maybe year two or year three into the company, we started realizing that, hey, maybe the most interesting digital asset is not media. So, not books or music or art, but the things that people generate in everything we do you know, personal data, a.k.a. Okay, data. And we started looking into, okay, what are the rights to this? Like, could you copyright data? Could you patent data? Could you trademark data? And the answer is, in most cases, no. So, what what rights do individuals have to this? And it's almost like dividing by zero. It's just undefined. Like, you don't know what it is. It's like infinity or, or zero. Like it's, you know, you don't have any rights at all or you have infinite rights depending upon which country you're in. That became the focus. And we felt that, wow, that's where we can really have an impact. And then that became a scary big problem because where do you start? First off, people, At the time, this was like 2016, I don't even think people were thinking about their data. They didn't understand what it was. It really was Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, that fiasco, before people started even wondering, hey, well, what exactly is this information that Facebook is sharing with all these people? So we had this this sort of education problem that luckily Facebook messed up and helped educate people. (laughs) (laughs) shouldn't say luckily because it's terrible what they're doing is destroying the internet like they're destroying the place i love but uh, they gave us a lot of help at the same time yeah we shouldn't so waste a crisis
0: you should not waste a crisis wait speaking of you just developed autonomy this year to help prevent a COVID 19 spread in your local community can you explain how that works and how you came to focusing on this very vital moment in history and the world
1: you bet Towards the end of last year, we were working on this Facebook problem. And specifically what we were working on is how can we allow individuals to connect, to share information such that you wouldn't have this like blood sucking vampire like Facebook in the middle, taking all of your information and selling it to the highest bidder. So we built this architecture, which we called Charter, that would enable a social network in a way that individuals would never lose control of their information. And when COVID came around, I felt like asking people to quit Facebook was just, I mean, you should quit Facebook, but it's like, you're already in such a crappy place. And the only thing fun is Facebook and talking to your friends. And it's like, here's some guy saying, get off Facebook. It's bad, right? It's bad for you. I, I, I just couldn't do it anymore. And so what we ended up doing was really just looking at this COVID problem and said, Hey, is there anything we could do to help? and I began asking friends and family, what do you want to know? And what was so shocking to me is that they had no idea, their neighborhood, what's going on? Like, are the infections growing? Are more people or less people getting infected? Like what, it would almost be like weather before you had sort of city specific weather. Like, can you imagine if you could only get Taiwan weather, you couldn't get like Taipei city weather or any city for that matter, it would be very strange, like, what What do you do? And so we felt that if we could allow people to pool data at the neighborhood level, that we could create a public health forecasting service, very similar in spirit, at least to the way weather can be forecasted. That if we could let people volunteer this information, that would be enough to begin to verify or validate. So the government would release numbers. And when people in your neighborhood would be sharing symptoms in a privacy preserving way, you could get this really interesting feedback loop and both individuals and governments could make better decisions because they would, it would be able to sort of forecast what's going on. And this used that same underlying architecture. We were working for Facebook data because the idea would be that people could group together, communicate, share information. And what's actually being shared is, is data that potentially is quite sensitive and you want to make sure it stays safe. But the data is only valuable because you're sharing it with people. So how do you do that? So that was really a, it was a really an interesting problem set matched right up to what we care the most about, which is helping people have rights in the digital environment. And that... That led to uh, a number of projects with different institutions, and the most exciting of which was UC Berkeley, which we were tasked with helping them to reopen campus. Could we use this technology to allow the school administrators and the city to make better decisions about reopening campus? Yeah. And I, I can trace the thread back, so please so please take us in a different direction for a bit. I think it will let them let the audience rest for a bit. Yeah, yeah.
0: When did i get off facebook you seem to be very pro data providence and anti-facebook when was your big leap off of major social media
1: well i still use twitter i stopped facebook in 2008 mm-hmm. and i remember one day there was like 90 different privacy settings i was counting them and they would just change them at random and i was really busy this was back when i was running open and it was a mess and i was like i can't i cannot keep up anymore I do not know what is private, what is public. And I'm just like, forget it. And I deleted it and I got off Instagram, I want to say 2000 and probably 18, something like that. But Twitter is my main vice. I, I really, I have a love hate with Twitter. So what's your media of choice these days? Still Twitter, on, honestly. Yeah. I mean, it's I, so I took Twitter app off my phone. I forced myself to go through the web browser to use Twitter. So that really gets me down to like 10 or 15 minutes per day.
0: Yeah, you were just talking to me about the interview that you watched recently. Podcast is like... (laughs) Podcasting, yeah.
1: I mean, I'm obsessed with
0: podcasts. Because you can always just be kind of plugged in, always absorbing information.
1: I drive a lot to go surfing. So I I usually surf at least two or three days a week. And that's, I don't know, it's probably six to eight hours. Yeah, And it's just amazing time for podcasts.
0: Totally. Podcasting, I think, is as close as you can get now to Neuralink. Yes. Like information is streaming into <laughs> <Yeah>. your consciousness. <laughs> totally. Uh, wait, tell me about this the Joe the Rogan and Kanye West yeah. interview that you've been fascinated by.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I was so fascinated by this. So uh, I, I also uh, like to wash dishes. That's sort of my, it's the one household chore that I love. And so I was washing dishes like I do every night. And Joe Rogan came on, like YouTube was playing. and. Kanye and I'm like oh god this is Kanye and uh, I gave it 10 minutes because my hands were soapy so I couldn't change it and it was really hard to get to 10 minutes and then at about 10 minutes I realized that oh my god this is amazing like this guy's incredible and what he was doing was essentially like he would have 10 or 15 ideas that he would weave together and he would be riffing for five minutes and Rogan would just let him talk. And then he would pull all five ideas together, almost like weaving a canvas, like a tapestry. And in the end, he would hit you with all five together. And you're just like, whoa, that was crazy. (laughs) And I kept listening. And I was like, that was one of the most enjoyable podcasts I've heard in years.
0: Yeah, yeah. you very brilliantly said that if you listen to it as a rap song, it's so much more pleasant.
1: It really felt like it was lyrical that if you think about it, like if you were to cut it off in the middle of those five minutes or seven minutes when he's going on and on and on, you'd be like, man, this guy's nuts, he's crazy. But if you let him finish, if you actually listen and you let him take you where you're going, like a song, like a journey, it's, it was profound. Like I was like, yeah, I was speechless. I was blown
0: away. Can you give us one idea that you took out from his riffing?
1: So one of the questions Joe Rogan asked is, what would your foreign policy be like? and which was like i mean come on this guy's gonna talk about foreign policy (laughs) (laughs) and it was incredible like where he went with this i don't know if i spoil it or not but he was talking about how trump and the north korean dictator sort of understood each other and why they understood each other and how he would make decisions how he would run the military and it was like he was weaving all these ideas together and it was some of the most interesting foreign policy i've heard from anybody and it's from you know kanye which is like are you serious like this is the person that can think that way which yeah. i felt that i've really struggled as an american with this election I mean, if i'm being honest right like i hate both of those people they make me angry that that this is the best that america can put forth and Kanye, and from that other direction, I was like, "Damn! Like I'd vote for that guy! Like this is this is nuts! Like that's the kind of person that should be leading America." Completely different direction, but completely different direction that I would have ever thought that I would want to support. But I was like, "Man, this guy's brilliant! Like he's thinking on different wavelengths, different levels, and this might be really interesting."
0: Yeah, this is great. It's, so it's worth listening to, honestly. Kanye 2024. He there had we least, go. At least one vote. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is good to know. <laughs> um, so I, I, I think we could keep talking for hours and hours, but I, I want to ask you one last question before yes. we, we sign off. You mentioned that there is a reading list at Bitmark. Uh, yeah. Can you talk about
1: what you include on it and why? Yeah, you bet. I'll talk about four things. So first, of course, is uh, Satoshi's white paper that had the biggest impact on me. I and mean, that's really the reason why Bitmark started. Second is there's a book called Let My People Go Surfing by the founder of Patagonia, Yvonne Chenard. And the idea with that book is that if the waves are good, you go surf. So things happen in life. Not like, hey, you're going to get a haircut, you know, 10 p.m. on a Tuesday, but or 10 a.m. on Tuesday. But there are things that happen in life and you have to embrace them. You have to change the way you work, the way you think to, you know, Mother Nature sends waves at you you can't say, hey, I'm going to go surf Tuesday at 10 a.m. It just doesn't work. Like there might or might not be waves. But if there's waves, you go. And if there's not waves, you work hard. And the way that he's used a company to create the change that he wants to see in the world, I just was absolutely, I mean, he's one of my all-time heroes. There was another paper on cryptography. So this the an academic paper called The Moral Character of Cryptography. And it starts off by, and I'll paraphrase this, I wish I have remembered exactly what the quote was, but it starts off by saying that cryptography rearranges power. And if you think about what's going on here, that we've always relied upon military and weapons and kings as the source of power. But if you use encryption as an individual, you have more power than any military. It doesn't matter you know, if you turned all of the atoms in the universe into computonium chomping away, trying to break your encryption, you're not gonna do it. And that book just, or this paper just was, I mean, it's incredible because I think most scientists, whether you're a computer science or physics science, you don't often think about the impact of your work in the real world. And this paper was like a cryptographer, which these guys, I mean, I've been to conferences of the top 500 and they don't talk at all about this stuff. But this guy wrote this paper on the moral character of cryptography, which is a huge impact. Final book, which, fascinating book, is called The Mystery of Capital by a Peruvian economist, Hernando de Soto. And he basically went around to all of these developing nations and tried to understand how is it possible that they're still so poor? Like, what is the difference between the West and the rest? And he came up with this hypothesis that it was a property system, that they had the ability to record property rights, and that the mystery of capital if you will. Why are certain countries getting so wealthy whereas others continually struggle for poverty? It's nowhere more as obvious as America, so North America versus South America. And his hypothesis, which had a huge impact on me, was that it was the property systems that are the, the vehicles, if you will, that generate wealth. If you don't have property systems that people trust, you can't develop wealth, it just goes away.
0: Yeah. So it's trust, It is the, the fundamental kind of energy unit of, of society.
1: It is. It really is. I mean, that's all money is. I mean, money is the most pure form of trust that we've ever created. Uh, these other things, property, these are more abstract in many ways than money, mm-hmm. but it's so important because these are what help us to organize. Right? And so you know, we, we rely upon government to solve our problems. That can work in some cases, but I think the most optimistic part of blockchain, of these protocol, so these end-to-end protocol based systems are that, well, the people can organize the way that we want to. And the moment you have that organizing ability, you are in some ways making institutions. And now you're talking about mechanisms of governance. So there's this really interesting possibility where we can begin to create communities that can govern themselves across the whole internet. To me, that feels very democratic. We don't need to rely upon politicians to solve these problems, which they obviously really struggle to solve. This is a fantastic note to end on.
0: Sean, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you so much for the time. This has been brought to you by The Taiwan Report.
0: For more content like this, become our patron at report.tw.
1: 最喜歡我的台灣狗了